All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I've heard lots of pastors and preachers say that they one day want to preach through Romans, but they want to wait till later on maybe in their ministries to preach through it, and I've never really understood that until now that I'm preaching through it, and I'm like, oh, I see why they wanted to wait. There is a lot in this letter, and some of it requires interpretation decisions, and uh, it's a, a struggle when you're looking at it, and then you're trying to come to some conclusions, and you'll lay out a number of respected commentaries from some brand new, some, you know, a couple hundred years ago, and uh, the commentators kind of go in two different directions on a particular passage on what Paul intended, and uh, that's where the challenge comes in. There is such a point in Romans 2 for that, though I don't know that we need to be too concerned about it, and I'll present it this morning in the way that I believe that Paul intended But even if I'm wrong, I'm right, because what I'll say is true in the rest of the letter. And so, it'll be okay. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and I think we'll read the first 24 verses. So let's get started. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You so say, one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Father, I ask now as we approach this time in our worship and we continue to worship you through what you have commanded to be done, your word to be read and interpreted, taught, proclaimed, exhorted, I pray that you would help us. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Give us hearts to comprehend spiritual truths. Give me the gift of the Spirit that must accompany effective preaching. I pray for that now so that what I say does not fall on deaf ears and what I say is in accordance with the truth of your word and that it would come with the, the Spirit's power to illuminate and encourage and rebuke and warn and direct to faith in Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen. Who is Paul talking to in Romans chapter 2? That's an important question. When he says in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Who is this man that he is referring to? Well, I don't think that he is referring to any one particular person. In other words, that he knows this guy's name. And so therefore, he's now honing in his letter on this one person that's sitting there in Rome that would be hearing it read. I think he's referring to a particular type of person. And what we know in Romans chapter 2 is that in Paul's mind, this person he's addressing is Jewish. We know that because of the verses we just read. He says it even down in verse uh, 17, as a matter of fact, you call yourself a Jew, you see. This is a Jewish person, and he's addressing particularly the Jews, and this is really important because in chapter 1, he was addressing the nations generally. So what the Bible refers to as Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jew, and he's calling them out on their sin. And then in chapter 2, he's honing in on Jewish people, this particular type of Jew, that is, who is standing there with arms folded as they hear Romans 1 in this indictment against the nations, and he's applauding Paul because he believes, yes, God's judgment rightly falls on those dirty sinners out there, you see. And this Jew is a self-righteous, judgmental Jew, as we looked at last week, and we'll look at just one more thing in a few minutes because it leads us into where we're going. He is looking on the world with disdain, sinners with uh, contempt. He's not a saved Jew. We know that because of verse 5. 
Look at that again. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart. So he's got a hard heart. And impenitent means unrepentant, refusing to turn from sin and self-righteousness to God. He's got this hard and impenitent heart. Listen, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That cannot be said of any true Christian. Any true Christian is not under the wrath of God. They are under the grace of God. So he's addressing someone who is not a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's clearly unsaved and under God's righteous judgment. He's relying on all the wrong things for his salvation and particularly for his justification. That is, on the day of judgment, he believes he'll be justified based on the wrong things, the wrong criteria. He's actually, according to this entire chapter, verse 17, as we just saw, is relying on the law. The very fact that he has the law and he knows it's the embodiment of truth, He's teaching others the law. He's actually boasting in God and the fact that he has the law and been instructed from the law. And that's actually how he's judging the nations and the sinners out there according to God's law. And he's trusting in that in his own ability to complete it. And he's trusting in verses, we didn't read this, but beginning in verse 25 through the end of this chapter, he's, he's trusting in circumcision. That is the sign of the covenant. That we are part of the covenant community of God and therefore what Paul said about the wrath of God upon the nations for their sin does not apply to me because of those criteria. I'm a Jew. I'm in the covenant. I have the law. I know what the law is and I'm trying my best to keep it. Therefore, when we come to God's judgment, I will be justified. And notice this in verse 13. It's the first time That idea of justification comes into play. And I want to talk about it just for a moment because it's it's where we're all headed in Paul's letter to the Romans here. In verse 13, he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be in the future justified before God at the judgment. The doers of the law will be declared righteous righteous is what he says. And they believe that. And that's why they are trying to obey the law so that on that day of judgment, God will look at what they've done and say, I declare you righteous. That word justification is directly connected to the word Righteousness is directly connected to the word justified. It has the idea in the verbal form, as we see right there in verse 13, to declare someone righteous, to be found in the right, catch this, free of charges. So what Paul is doing, remember, in these first three chapters is he's bringing charges against people. The charge essentially is you're a sinner. You're breaking God's law. And you need to be justified. How does that happen if you're a lawbreaker? Because God isn't going to look at somebody who's a sinner and he knows it and broken his holy law and just justify them based on nothing. 
He's not going to declare somebody's righteous who isn't. Free of charges would mean you've never done anything wrong. And in God's courtroom, it is not only have you never done anything wrong, but that you've done everything right. That's what it is to be righteous in the sight of God. This person thinks he's on his way to the kingdom and into heaven based on his own merit and goodness and who he is and what he does. And as we'll see, that's a real problem. And so Paul has to address this person. Now, Last week we looked at the, book, uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke for uh, just a few minutes. We turned to some things. I want you to turn there again. Luke chapter 18. There was one I didn't get to and it was actually going to lead us into what we're going to address this morning. Jesus dealt with this kind of Romans 2 person his whole ministry. They were essentially the ones, this kind of Romans 2 person, who were responsible for turning him over to the Gentiles. Then Paul picks up the baton and preaching the gospel and he's persecuted largely by this kind of Romans 2 person. The same kind of person that was troubling those churches in Galatia that we just wrote about coming to them with another gospel, you see. So this was a common problem. But look at this, Luke chapter 18 and and begin in verse 9. This is the parable, of course, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I want you to notice some wording in this. He also, verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the Roman 2 guy. They're trusting in themselves that they're righteous and they looked at others and they judged them and they looked at them with contempt. You know that word contempt is powerful, by the way. It it means this, to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity, catch this, has no merit or worth. They're looking out at the world with disdain is the idea. These are people not worthy of knowing God, not worthy of the gospel. I told you before, it's, it's not a judgment that looks out at the world and says, that's sin, that's the right kind of judgment, that's sin. But it's a, it's a judgment that says they're condemned, they're guilty, they have no hope, and no hope of the gospel is coming from them at all. And it's actually mixed with a hatred and disdain because they think themselves so much superior. That's the problem. And so Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In other words, friends, as this person was listening to Paul's letter read in chapter 1, in his mind he's praying and he's thanking God that he's not like all those people in Romans 1. Right? That's what he's doing. Thank you that I'm not like all these people Paul just listed in Romans 1. I, and then he lists a couple things on his resume to display his works before God, laying his works out before God. 
for his justification. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But in contrast to that, Jesus taught, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house, and there's our word, right? Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the person who reads Romans 1 and frankly Romans 2 and Romans 3 and says, that's me? And sings like we just did this morning, have mercy on me. I am unrighteous. I am a sinner to the core. That person confessing that is justified. That's where Paul is leading, and we have to keep it in mind. This is the kind of person he has in mind. And it is interesting, back in Romans 2, just think about this as you're going back to Romans 2. This was Paul, was it not? Remember when we talked about the intro to Paul's letter to the Romans? This is who he was. That's why he can, sp- he can spend a whole chapter just dealing with people like him. Oh, I know what you're thinking, says Paul. Because I was you. I know exactly what you're thinking right now. And Paul, as a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 10, I love this. In this section, uh, chapters 9 through 11, dealing largely with the Jews themselves and God's plan of salvation and plan for the ages. And he says this in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. He's writing Romans 2 to these kind of people with a heart that says, I want them to be saved like I was saved. I know how they're thinking. I know they're on the trajectory to God's wrath and my heart goes out to them and I want to see them saved. So see, he's not doing what a lot of Christians nowadays do. And we stand with arms uh, folded in judgment over the self-righteous people. Oh, those self-righteous legalistic people. And we stand in judgment over them. We do the same thing but on the opposite side of the spectrum. Paul's heart is that even... That self-righteous people like himself can be saved from their sins, you see. So that there's no disdain or contempt within the heart of a Christian who's been saved by grace. That kind of contempt and hatred for sinners cannot fully reside, friends, in a heart that truly understands grace. And that they were recipients of grace themselves, you see. So important to see this. But in chapter 10, verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They, they don't understand what Paul said in Romans 1.17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
In other words, they don't have a righteousness in themselves. They need a righteousness outside themselves. And the good news of the gospel is God's provided that righteousness you need so that you can be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they're ignorant of that or refusing to believe in that. They're refusing to submit to God's righteousness and they're wanting to just establish their own. And he said, for Christ, verse 4, is the end of the law for this purpose, for righteousness, for a right standing before God. The law comes to an end there because by the law, as we'll see, you cannot be declared righteous. That's the whole point. Right? The Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in Christ is the idea. So we love the law, we teach the law, we embrace the law. The law has its proper use in the Christian's life, but its use is not this. Its use is not to be obeyed so that you can be declared righteous on the day of judgment. If you use it that way, like the guy in Romans 2, you will go to hell. And friends, this warning needs to go out into churches, not just to Jewish people, but to to Christians who professing Christians who think they're okay with God because they're professing Christians or think they're okay with God because they're part of the right church or because they have good theology or because they possess the Bible or because they're not living like the nations or because they were baptized or walked an aisle or whatever their resume is. It needs to be said to them, if that's what you're relying on, you're on your way to hell. Because there is only one way and through one person that one can be justified and it is through Jesus Christ alone. The only law keeper who ever lived. The only law fulfiller is Jesus Christ. So he must be your righteousness. And it is all brought to us by this means and this mystery of faith where we're trusting and relying upon him. Paul knows how these people are thinking and his heart goes out to them. He was once like that but experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ and wants them to experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So he very clearly calls them out so they're not headed down the wrong path. This person in chapter 2 of Romans has a wrong view of the judgment of God. They have a wrong view of God's judgment. As we've discussed, they don't think it's against them. They think they're going to bypass it somehow. And they don't understand the criteria by which God judges. And the level of obedience that is required in order for God to declare a person just by the works of the law. So they're faulty in their thinking about God's judgment. And so Paul in this chapter is largely just giving them good teaching on God's judgment. The realities of God's judgment. It's like a wake-up call. If you're going to try to stand in God's judgment by your keeping of the law, you need a wake-up call as to the realities of God's judgment. So he begins, first point here, the certainty of God's judgment for everyone. It's very clear. Everyone, including the Jews, Jews and Gentiles, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ himself, before God himself in Christ to be judged one day. He needs to be reminded of that. 
So in verses two and three, it says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's asking that question knowing the answer. He knows they think they're going to escape it, and that's the problem. He knows they think in their minds because of the wrong reasons that they're going to bypass and escape the judgment of God. Or in verses five and six, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Now listen to this phrase, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. In other words, there is now, Paul is using this phrase, a day of judgment coming. It's a fixed day on which God is going to judge everyone without exception, Jew and Gentile. And they need to be reminded of that. And then in verse 16, he refers to this day again, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase there. There it is again, that day that's coming. We need to be aware of that. And notice this phrase, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. In other words, when the gospel came, judgment didn't go away. You know, there are some people, some Christians, well-intentioned, I hope, but they're afraid to talk about the judgment of God as though somehow in the New Testament with the gospel, it just went away somewhere. Don't be afraid of God's judgment anymore. That's not gospel, that's Old Testament, right? And that's why some people, they'll take their Bible and they, they divide up and say, yeah, I don't really like the Old Testament because it's just so, I don't know, angry and there's fire and brimstone and it just, it just doesn't seem like gospel. Well, now that the gospel, we can get rid of all that, right? And the answer is wrong. Paul says, according to my gospel, there's a day of judgment coming. And every single person is going to stand in judgment before God. That's what the gospel teaches, you know. And the good news is how, you, how you're justified in the judgment, how you're saved from that day of wrath to come. That's what the gospel teaches. There's a certainty of God's judgment for everyone. It is certain. What's so cool, when we studied uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 25, remember the Olivet Discourse? And Jesus is talking about when he returns. Remember, he's preparing his disciples for that inner advent age, and then the day he returns, he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It is through Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 16 of Romans says, that he will, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That in God's plan, he has established it so that the incarnate Christ is the one before whom all Jew and Gentile must pass in order to get into the kingdom. And Jesus himself says, when that day comes, I'm going to separate people into two categories. And that leads me to this next point in Romans 2. We had the certainty of God's judgment for everyone and then the conclusions of God's judgment. There are only two possible conclusions on the day of judgment for you and me. There's only two. He says in verses six and seven, he will render to each one according to his works 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So look at those words, glory, honor, peace, eternal life. Those sound really good, don't they? That's what we want. Because on the other hand, the other possible conclusion on the day in judgment for you or for me is in verses 8 and 9. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So it doesn't matter who you are, there's only one of two possible outcomes, either eternal life and glory and honor and peace, or there is eternal wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. In other words, eternal misery forever and ever. And that lines up exactly with what Jesus taught in Matthew 25, right? Remember when he separated people into two categories? Sheep and goats. And it did not matter if you were Jew or Gentile. You're in one of those two categories. And he put the sheep on his right hand and he said, now you go into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. They go into eternal life. And he said to the, those on his left, to the goats, they go into eternal punishment. which leads to this very obvious question. Exactly what Paul wants you to start thinking, exactly what he wanted the church at Rome to start thinking, exactly what he wanted the, the Jews of Romans 2 to start thinking, to ask this question, what is, what is my eternal destiny? Where am I headed? How can I be right with God? By what means, by what way, what must I do to be justified so that I can go into eternal life and glory and honor and peace and avoid this terrifying thought of eternal wrath and fury and tribulation and distress, eternal misery. You know, it's good and right for a human to be thinking like that and to be asking that question. I want to make sure I'm right with God. I'm not into scaring our children necessarily into false professions of faith. I can remember as a kid calling my mom into my bedroom in the middle of the night, terrified just thinking, if Jesus returns, mom, I could go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Just show me what I got to do. Show me what I got to do. I don't want to go to hell. And the terror necessarily, I'm not convinced, is always healthy because sometimes it leads to false professions of faith and, and different things. But there is a healthy contemplation about eternal realities and the fact that if you were to die right now, you face those eternal realities, those two conclusions. It isn't like if you die right now and you find yourself in the presence of God and you're like, I was trusting in all the wrong things and I was a lover of sin and I chose sin over God. Okay, God, I know you're merciful now. Can I give it another try? 
That's not the way it works. The author to Hebrews says, it is appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. It is no surprise to me that the devil keeps us so entertained that we never think about this. We fill our minds with everything but this. It's not something we tend to think about as we should. I love reading about and from the Puritans and they had habits, habits like taking long walks in the woods with no cell phone. And all they would do in these long walks in the woods is think about God and eternal realities and salvation and scripture and things of eternal value, things that ultimately really matter, that make everything else in our lives pale in comparison when it comes to mattering about eternity. How much thought do you give to eternal, weighty things? Do you hear a message like this and just kind of say, oh yeah, well, I'm okay. Next, let's just move on to the next thing or whatever I'm thinking about now. If you do that, you're, you're probably making the same mistake that this man Paul's dressing is. You think you're okay. Pause and give it thought. Think about eternal matters. Cry out to God. Am I justified? Am I right with you? Have I been forgiven of my sins? Do I have the righteousness of Christ? Show me. And friends, the way you go from here, when you ask the question, how can I be right with God? The way you go from here, the answer to that question is eternally important because not everybody answers it the right way. The most natural response to that question By nature, what people think they can do then is they say, okay, I see God's angry with sin. I see judgments coming. So I'm going to stop sinning and I'm going to start doing good. And I'm going to keep on doing good. As a matter of fact, I'm going to persevere in doing good all the way to the end. That's what I'm going to do. That's the wrong way of going, but that describes every single major world religion except for gospel-centered, Christ-proclaiming religion. Christianity, true Christianity. It's the only thing that sets it apart. Every other major world religion, including offshoots of Christianity, like Roman Catholicism, and Jehovah's Witness, and Mormonism, but it's the same in Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism or anything else. It's all based on what I do. And if I do enough good things, it turns out for me in the end. That's the wrong direction. Paul's trying to level that. And so he lays out the law in verses 6 through 11. You want to live according to the law? Let me lay down the law for you so that you understand how this works. I need to remind you how the law works. He will render to each one according to his works. Now, on the one hand, here it is, to those who by patience in well-doing, that is endurance, 
who endurance and well-doing seek or are seeking continuously for glory and honor and immortality, he will, you could even put it this way, award them with eternal life. Or in verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone, catch this important phrase as compared to Romans 3, who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's how the law works. Do this, do it perfectly and continually, and you will be blessed in your doing. Obey the law, and God will see you've done that, and He will award you with eternal life. That's the one way. On the other hand, those who are self-seeking, verse 8, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Self-seeking is interesting word. Having, I think, in this context, the implication that what they're doing, they're not doing necessarily for God or for others. That would be in keeping with the law. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That'd be good, but they're doing what they're doing for self-seeking motives. They're not obeying the truth. They're, not obeying on, they're obeying righteousness. And for them, it's wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being. Verse 9, who does evil. The Jew first and also for the Greek. Verse 12, anyone who has sinned without the law will also perish with the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's how it works. criteria of God's judgment is his righteousness and his law you'll notice in verse 6 he says he that is God will render each one according to his works there you have the works but notice that pronoun beginning that sentence he that is God himself is the judge remember because the problem the Romans 2 person was having and the problem a lot of people have is this that they think God's going to judge them by their standards and not his. So, because in their minds, they're not that bad. And I mean, when they look out at the lost world, they're like, I'm certainly not as bad as them. I, I look out at Romans 1, I mean, I know I do some, some things wrong sometimes, but come on. See, they made the mistake of thinking that God is like themselves. They think, they think God is like them, you see. That's a tragic error. They will be held according uh, uh, to the standard of the law. And he says in verses 12 through uh, 16 that it doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile. The Jews who have the law will be judged by the law. And the Christians in America who have the Bible will be judged by the Bible. And so it works like this. He's going to render according to each uh, their works. So uh, he's going to look at your works in comparison to his written word. How'd you do? Did you measure up? Did you fail in any way? On the other hand, he talks about in these verses 12 through 16, there are those throughout history and even now who do not have the Bible in their possession. They couldn't tell you one of the Ten Commandments. They don't know them because they've never had exposure to the Bible. And God says, I'm still going to judge them by what I'm calling this natural law of the conscience that I've written on their hearts. 
Because in every society that even didn't have the Bible, when they said it's wrong to murder, you can't murder your neighbor, even if you want to, it revealed that they, they had the law in here. They knew what was right and wrong. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to uh, uh, sleep with other people than your spouse. They know these things are wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. They still do them. And they do what he says in Romans 1. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And they can actually train their consciences to not feel much anymore. But what God's making very clear is this. I know the secrets of men. And I know they know what they're doing is wrong. And I'll judge them according to what they knew. But either way, it's a problem. Because you are judged according to your works. And according to the criteria of God's righteous judgment. And that leads to my last point here. The crisis of God's judgment. That when we see the true standards of the law and what is required of us to be justified in the sight of God, we find very quickly we don't measure up. Whether you're the Gentile who never had the law or the Jew that has it, what he's saying is no one fulfills the criteria to be justified. Friends, isn't that exactly what he's leading to in chapter 3? When he says this and Verse 9 of chapter 3, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged, in chapters 1 and 2, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, listen, none is righteous, no, not one. In other words, everyone obeys unrighteousness. And what he just said in chapter 2 is, okay, to be justified and have eternal life, you can't obey unrighteousness. Well, guess what? We all do. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God or the glory of God or the honor of God for heavenly things. No one does this by nature. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Catch this. No one does good, not even one. And yet he said in chapter 2, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek. Who does good? Who does good by nature? No one does this. So the criteria he sets in chapter two, by nature, no one fulfills. And that presents the crisis. How then can we be declared righteous on the judgment day? How can we be saved? Chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Isn't that good news? Since by the works of the law, no one can be justified because all the law does for us, according to chapter three, verse 20, all the law does for us is brings us the knowledge of our sin. So we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. That's what's provided in the gospel. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the whole Testament was talking about it, pointing towards it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, a simple answer to the question, how can I be right with God, is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't rely on the law or the works that you're performing or who you are or your background or anything else. You're relying 100% on Jesus Christ. 
It was his work. See, friends, who's the only one who has ever fulfilled the criteria set forth in chapter two? Who is the only one that ever, verse seven, by patience and well-doing, saw for glory and honor and immortality? Who did that perfectly? Only Jesus. Who saw for glory and honor and peace? Who did good always from his heart with no self-seeking, no selfish motive, just always did good, the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is he went to the cross, paid for all your wrongdoing, all your sin, took your sin, my sin upon himself, bore it all, and then rose again the third day. And now when you trust in him, you get forgiven of your sins and you get his righteousness. Because remember what I told you, God isn't gonna declare anybody righteous who isn't righteous. But friends, in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. So the justification isn't fake or pretend. It's real. Because Christ for you fulfilled all of the requirements for a human being to be right with God. Fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. He earned eternal life for you and for me. And now when you trust in him, you receive it from him by grace alone. There is a righteousness that is apart from the law, a righteousness that has been fulfilled for us and his name is Jesus. This is why we sing, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel for us. We see your righteous standard and we confess we don't fulfill it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we stand here now justified people and help us as we continue on next week and working through chapter two and three and four and five. I pray that you would just solidify that truth in our minds and hearts and may it bring radical change even in the way we treat others and in the way we live our lives. And we ask this in his name, amen.